Uh, children are dismissed to Children's Church if you're second through fourth grade. The rest of you can turn to Romans chapter 12. This morning it is our privilege to look at the concluding verses of Romans 12. We've been looking at Romans 12, 9 and following as a description of authentic Christianity, the life, the motives, the morals, and the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. The chapter began with an exhortation not to be conformed to this world, the ungodly actions and reactions, the evil ways and wants of the world, of those who do not know God. Rather than be conformed to the world, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Some folks name the name of Christ, they desire his salvation in some way, or even live comfortably in the church, but do not desire or seek to be transformed by him. So Paul exhorts us to let that transformation take place. Our very purpose in salvation, our very nature in the new birth, is to be pleasing to God. And pleasing God requires transformation to be different from the world. It requires letting him mold and shape us. It requires effort in thought and in prayer and in decision-making. Nobody automatically lives for the Lord. Nobody. It doesn't just happen. It's not natural. Not natural to fallen beings wicked creatures. Most people live for themselves. And even those who are possessed of the new birth by God's Holy Spirit have to labor in spiritual things so they do not slide into the world's thinking and self-centeredness as the old nature pulls at us to do so. And the world around us presses us in to be like it. So we have to press forward spiritually to be like Christ in the world. Living for Christ is radically different, radically different. And the divine expectations are so clear that we really have no excuse for not working harder at it than we do. All you need to do is read this passage, actually all the whole chapter, Romans 12, and the Spirit of God should bring to your mind areas that need some diligent labor. I, think, I hope all of you have felt that way as we've worked our way through this chapter. I know I have. Romans 9, 12 through 16. Let me um, read that part. Romans 12, 9 through 16. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and curse not. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That is the Christian life as we have seen it so far. But this morning we come to the pinnacle, I guess, the mountaintop of Christian moral instruction. Beginning at verse 17... Paul applies and explains the doctrine of Christ which is found in the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't use Jesus' words, which are, love your enemies. But that's exactly what he's talking about. He is describing that. In fact, he may simply be waiting because in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, he does get to the point of describing love. And um, so he's not done talking yet. Just because somebody put a chapter division here that Paul didn't add in doesn't mean he's done with this conversation. But uh, he's going to get to love in detail. But that's what he's talking about. We are indebted, he says in 13, 8 through 10, to love all men, 
So verse 21 in chapter 12 does not finish his theme. But Romans 9, 17 through 21 exposes us before that holy love of God as sinners indeed, because this is so difficult to live. We read these words, consider our own dealing with our enemies, and we see our own sinfulness. Can you live this? Can I live this? Can we do this? It's not impossible. Not for the man or woman of faith. Because by God's grace, we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind and be Christ-like and actually live this. Verse 17. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. So right away we have the basic theme. How do I conduct myself when I am wronged, even terribly wronged, by other people? What is my obligation as a Christian? What does the world say? Strike back, strike hard. Pay them out. Pay them back in kind, maybe even a little harder than they struck you. Put them on your enemies list and review it regularly. When you think about them, burn with hostility. When you have opportunity, cut them down behind their back. When you can, pay them out for what they did to you. That's the way the world sees it. That is the world's wisdom. That is the world's way. And popular culture exalts that idea. Hollywood feeds the emotional desire for harsh retribution. People in movie theaters, when the, the negative character, or the goofy character, or the poorly written character that just happens to be the, the, the jerk in the story, when he gets his comeuppance, people cheer. They burst forth into applause because, ha, 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 we got back at him. The world delights and honors that. That's modern Hollywood. Actually, old Hollywood under the production code days was exactly the opposite. There were many films made about the um, senselessness and the uh, futility and the lack of true pleasure in, in, in vindication and, and in revenge and how that is not a fulfilling way to be. But modern Hollywood has thrown all that away. God says that revenge is not what you're here for. Never pay back evil for evil to whom? Anyone. Who does that leave out? My enemy. That's who that leaves out. No? <laughs> it is never right to do what's wrong. You heard your mother say it. Two wrongs don't make a right. That is true. It is never right to do what's wrong. And boy, people get hostile when you suggest this. You don't have the right in God's universe to do what's wrong, ever. People don't like to hear that. They don't like to hear that. What? I've got my rights. Not before God, you don't. There's a much forgotten moral principle that is embedded here in Paul's doctrine. And that is that it is always better to be wronged than to do wrong. Always. It's always better to be wronged than to do wrong. That's not the way the world thinks. It's always better to be on the receiving end of sin than to be a sinner. Always. That is as certain as it is true that your soul is more important than your body or your stuff. It is as true as that. To be wronged can only be an affliction of body or goods, either yours or those you love. There's nothing else they can do. They can't harm your soul. That's why Jesus said, don't fear people that can kill your body. 
fear the one who can kill your body and throw your soul into hell. That's the one you should fear. Because all I can do to you is kill you. That's the, that's the worst it can get. Martin Burnham, the missionary, is in heaven right now rejoicing with Christ. That's the worst they could do was kill his body. He is a happy man today. It's always better to be wronged than to do wrong. To be wronged can only be an affliction of body or goods. But to do wrong is to pollute and corrupt that which is eternal and precious to God, which is your very soul. That's a hard thing to live. There is no situation in life where it is appropriate to do evil. The next line in verse 17 there, respect what is right or good, is actually the Greek word, in the sight of all men. Respect what is good in the sight of all men. That is, not what everybody else says is good. That's not what he's saying. You respect what is good and acknowledge it and live by it in the sight of all men so that they see that that's what you do. Wherever you are, you do the right thing. When everyone else is jumping on board to get revenge, you stand apart. That is, you should have such a consideration for the good that others will notice that you're different. That's the way it should be. The idea here is much like Matthew 5.16. Again, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, what? Let your light shine before men, how? In such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You should be so right and so good and so winsomely positive about all that good that people look at that and go, you know, there's something special about the God that that person worships. That's how you should conduct yourself. Our faith should be so authentic and lived on such a high place that even the pagans will recognize and appreciate its quality even if they don't really understand it. That, by the way, is how Christianity conquered the Roman Empire. Not with revolutions and plotting, but by dying cruelly in the love of Christ. And it became an ancient saying, born of horrible injustice, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That has always been true. It's still true. You'll find that it's true in the Philippines today based on what happened. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It was said that for every Christian killed in the Roman arena, and the Romans said this, two more were born in the crowd watching them die the way they did because they were so full of grace and love and respect. Respect what is good in the sight of all men. Well, let's move on. Verse 18, regarding interpersonal relationships, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. If there is a conflict in a relationship, it should not be you keeping it going. Blessed are the peacemakers, right? Paul is very wise here. He knows that it takes two to be at peace. And you can't control other people. But as far as it depends on you, you be at peace with all men. Someone could regard you with contempt. And no matter what you do, they will hate you and hold on to their bitterness and that is on their head if you have done all that is required of you to make peace. As far as a Christian can, he or she should be at peace with everyone inside the church and outside the church. Now we are talking about interpersonal relationships. We're not talking about countries at war or anything like that. That's a different subject and that's in chapter 13. We'll get there. Another day. But in terms of interpersonal relationships, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, what do we mean by peace? Well, I, we certainly mean mutual respect, right? And for the Christian, from our side, Christ-like love is the thing we want to 
be having our hearts towards the other person. That's what would make for peace. Genuinely desiring what is best for that other person. Genuinely wanting that. That's what makes for peace. Hostility is not where you can rest or feel satisfied or comfortable. Hostility is that thing to overcome on your part. No room for that. No room for that in the kingdom of God. But we don't mean peace at any price. God always comes first, and the truth has to come first. In other words, we're not talking about being, what do they used to call them, Casper Milk Toast? You know, a little, uh, oh, so sorry, I didn't mean to be offensive. You know, and, and you just give up everything you believe, and you just like lay down, and uh, my dog. When certain people walk in my house, my dog lays down and gets all, what do they call that, the, uh, the submissive pose? That's not what we're talking about. Jesus wasn't like that. And, and that's regarding the truth. In other words, if somebody's opposed to the truth, we don't lay down and go, oh, well, just for peace's sake, well, we'll just say the truth isn't true. That's not what he's talking about. Jesus said, Matthew 10.34, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. That's an interesting statement from a man who said, blessed are the peacemakers. For I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. What is he talking about? He's splitting up families? He's not splitting up families, but because of him, families are split up. And some of you know this very well. When you choose to live for Christ, there are people in your life that can't stand it. They won't have it. They will reject you. They will turn against you. You are a good guy before you got that religion stuff going. You know, that whole thing. Oh, so-and-so got religion. They're no fun anymore. That, um, some people get positively hostile about it. And it divides people. If you're going to choose to live for Christ, you make sacrifices. Because other people can't handle it. And you will lose people in your life when you do that. The gospel does cause divisions. If you become a Christian and your family rejects you for it and is hostile to you, that is not peace at any price. You don't give up the gospel for peace's sake. See? If they say, well, I love you if you give up Christ. Sorry. There's going to be a division. Then they must remain hostile. But that doesn't mean you be hostile. It doesn't mean that. See? As far as it depends on you, be at, be at peace with all men means you stay loyal to Christ and love your enemies just as he did. Just as he did. If someone says, you've got to join with us in this sin or that sin, and if you don't, we'll be your enemy. They won't say it like that, but that's what they'll mean. Then you must choose righteousness. But in your heart, you should desire peace and pray for their good, not see them as enemies. So it's not, our attitude isn't, okay, you guys have chosen the dark way, now you're my enemy. That's not the way it is for us. They may be enemies, but that's not what's in your heart. That's not what your heart wants. You would make peace in a minute if you could do so without compromise. So there's no hostility on your part ever. There's no place for it, no need for it. But Christ does cause divisions. I'm actually surprised that this happens as much as it still does because we live in a culture that worships tolerance, supposedly, right? We live in this tolerant age. But I've learned that people that worship tolerance really can't tolerate the truth. That drives them nuts. They go bonkers when you start saying, you know, there's an absolute truth, there's a right and wrong, God judges the people, he's a judge of all the earth. Lord, how can you say that? That's the most tolerant soul in the world freaks out with that. They're so intolerant. 
Try speaking the truth, and you'll see how you're treated. So let the world be hostile. That's okay. Except, uh, expect it. But for you, so far as it depends on you, what? Be at peace with all men. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. We, for Christ's sake, always need to be ready for reconciliation, always ready to forgive, always ready to accept, just as Christ accepted us as unworthy as we are, right? In that same way. Do you want God to treat you the way you treat your enemies? Because Romans 5 says you are his enemy. No, you don't want that. Be like him. Be like him. Let's move on to verse 19. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. There's a really important point here, and it combines two important Christian virtues, self-control and faith. Love needs to be the springboard for self-control. Never take your own revenge. Your job is like Christ's job on the earth, to reach out God's hand of reconciliation to everyone. That's what you're here for. Your job is to say, God wants to be reconciled with you. That's your job as a Christian in the world. If wrongs need to be righted, God will take care of them. God will take care of them. That's his part. You need faith at exactly this point to love like Jesus did. You have to believe that that's true. To live the right way. You've got to believe it. You have to. Trust God for your enemies' comeuppance. They're just desserts. They're due. Trust Him for that. And you love them. That's God's business, not your business. So put down your weapons, whether they be guns or backbiting words or slanders or other schemes. That's not your job. Your job is have faith in God. Your job is love. Verse 20, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. God will judge your enemy. You feed him. See? That's how it works. God will handle the wrath. You handle the buffet table. That's, that's basically what he's saying. It's your job to love and to do good to those who wrong you. That's your part. God's part, if it's needed, is to bring wrath and justice about. Let's expand on this idea briefly by turning back to Luke 6. We're going to come back to Romans 12, but let's jump back to Luke 6. We not only have the divine command here in Luke 6 to love our enemies, but Jesus actually explains exactly what it means. And I think he has to do that because you know what we would do if he didn't. If he just said, love your enemies, what? Well, we kind of like try to explain that. Now, what could he really mean by that? You know how people say that about some clear command in the Bible? What does he really mean by that? Well, we could make it very distant, you know. Love means no harm, so I'm not going to kill them. Uh, we could say, we could make it very cosmic. Well, you know, I love them in the way that I love the oneness of all things. You know, we're all part of the one great... That's not what he means. None of that stuff. There's no room for interpretation, thankfully. No chance to water it down. They we're stuck with the real words. Verse 27 of Luke chapter 6. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. And here's what he means. Do good to those who hate you. 
Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. There it is. Three things. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. That's how you love your enemies. And this is where your faith may receive its greatest test. The question of what you do with your enemies reveals so much about what you really believe and who you really are. It's really the test. Enemies. You know, honestly, I don't have a whole lot of enemies. Now, maybe if I were a little more bold in my life, I would have more enemies, but I can literally count on one hand, and probably less than one hand, the number of genuine, actual enemies I've had in my whole life. I mean, enemies. And by an enemy, I don't mean somebody that just sort of hassles you or gives you a hard time somewhere, but someone who, for whatever reason, has decided that you need to be destroyed in some significant way. That's what an enemy is to me. That's what I mean by an enemy. Someone who wants to see you fired or tries to break up your friendships or systematically abuses you and wants to destroy your life, that's an enemy. Stuff like that. I just haven't had many of those. Maybe I have more enemies than that, but they're too polite to let me know that they're my enemies. And that's good. But from my limited experience, I have learned a few things about enemies and dealing with enemies. For one thing, enemies are valuable because they reveal your own sinfulness. They do. They're more than eager to point out your own faults, for one thing. But beyond that, to love them is so difficult that it really does reveal in your heart how wicked you are. It does. Look in your heart and there are some wicked things in there. And having enemies in your life lets you see that. Because, you know, if you don't not have enemies, you don't really have to deal with that part of yourself. But when there's an enemy in your life, <laughs> the beast comes out. If you keep your focus on the Lord, you can conquer those ugly desires. You can. You can have victory over those feelings. And I have found that in time, you can actually be thankful for having an enemy because of the benefits that come to you spiritually from having them. I see my own sin, I see my own need for grace, and I must labor in love. It's a deep experience of faith applied in life when you have an enemy. It really is. It's a profound thing. And you can't do it without the Lord. You cannot do it without the Lord. You can't. And that's a very enriching thing in my spiritual walk. Enemies bring out the worst, and that calls for our best. I can, in my own strength, I think, tolerate the existence of my enemies. But love them? That takes supernatural power. It really does. And that's exactly what the Christian has. Romans 5.5 5 says, The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. God's love is more than able to transform us and shape our mind to love our enemies. Spend some time reflecting on God's love for you and you will soon see why you have no right to withhold love from anyone else. So, how do I love my enemies? Do good to those who hate you, Jesus says, verse 27. That's the idea of the food and drink in Romans 12, 20, where Paul says if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. That's the idea. Do good to them. Do good to your enemies. You actually find can get to a place where you find some joy in coming up with creative ways to be good to your enemies. That's a fun thing to do. You don't believe me, do you? It is. You can get to that place. Do good means to benefit them in some way. Act for their good. Act on their behalf. The question is, what good thing can I do for my enemy today? 
Whereas the world would say, what one thing can I do to destroy my enemy today? To make life a little more miserable for them. The Christian should ask, what good thing can I do for my enemy today? So be creative or very simple and direct. Volunteer to assist your enemy with some task. Direct some special courtesy towards them. If you have an enemy on the job, look for something they do well and go to the boss and say, you know, Joe, my enemy, he does a great job with that. He does that very well. Well, don't say Joe, my enemy, but, but <laughs> just but point out maybe something about that's good about them. Behind their back, oh, isn't that good, you know. Only God would know that you did that. You know? My enemy came up with that great idea. That was a great idea. You know, that kind of thing. Bless those who curse you, Jesus said. We talked about that in Romans 12, 14. When they curse you, bless them. It's the old Reggie White thing when the guys are trash-talking across the scrimmage line and they're getting ready to nail each other in the football league and they're saying really foul things to him and he says, God loves you, man. Then he tears their head off, you know. <laughs> According to the rules... But it's that kind of thing. I mean, you respond with love and, and blessing. God bless you. That's hard because you don't want them to be blessed. Right? So when you get to that point, that's a good thing. And you know, it's actually hard because you don't want their evil to be blessed. So I figured out a little formula for this. Works for me. I pray this way. I say, Lord, my enemy is acting wickedly and in pride. I pray that if my enemy is in any way humble before you, that you will bless that. And if they are not humble before you, that you will humble them. So you can bless them. That's how I pray. I feel like that covers a lot of ground. That kind of keeps things in balance. You're not approving of their evil, but you're wanting God to do what's right. To bless them. To save them. Now I just showed you how to do number three. Pray for those who mistreat you. It's nearly impossible to hate a person you consistently pray for. If you pray for someone every day, it's really hard to hate them. This is hard. And that's why a lot of Christians don't pray for people that they are in conflict with because they know if they did, they'd have to give up those feelings. And they don't want to. But you have to. You have to before the Lord. So you pray for them every day. And those feelings start to abate over time. Won't happen right away necessarily, but it will happen. Keep praying. Pray for their salvation. Pray for their repentance. Pray for their spiritual growth. Whatever they need to be right with God and to be blessed, pray for that. I pray that God would frustrate their evil plans and bless any move they make in His direction, as long as it is genuine. And if they don't believe, then Lord, give them faith. That's how you pray for them. Do good to them. Bless them. Pray for them. That's your part. And if vengeance is needed, guess what? God will take care of vengeance. You don't have to do it. Don't have to do it. You might come up with a lot of great ideas for him. But don't share them with the Lord. He doesn't need your ideas for vengeance. He knows all about what to do. Just put those away. Put those away. You focus on doing your part. Tell the Lord in prayer that all aspects of just desserts you will leave up to him yours. That's your baby. You can handle that. Now, what will that accomplish? For you, it will be victory over one of the darkest recesses of the human heart. And that's a good thing. When you can love your enemies, you will know that God is doing wonderful things in your heart. Love, you will find, is freedom from all kinds of burdens of the soul. All kinds of depressive, sorrowful things. Love is freedom 
when you do it Christ's way. It unburdens you. But loving your enemies also may do something for your enemy. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12, the end of uh, verse 20. It cooks their brains. <laughs> or something. Paul talks about how doing good to your enemy affects them, and he uses a really interesting figure of speech. He says, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals upon his head. That'll work. All right, let's feed him. I want to see him cooking. No, no, it's not a bad thing. What does that mean? You know, nobody really knows what Paul meant by that. It's a really interesting... It must have been some first century expression. Heap burning coals on their head. There, there is some evidence... Now, he's quoting from Proverbs, so it's actually Solomon's words. He's quoting Proverbs chapter 25. And Solomon had an Egyptian wife and he knew about Egypt and it, there are some scholars who say, and I'm not sure what the actual level of evidence for this is, but there are people that say, and I haven't seen the original stuff, I hate quoting stuff about the ancient world unless I've actually seen the source document, so this is secondhand information from a scholar, so I'm just throwing it out there for, but some people say that in Egypt, putting burning coals on your head, like in a bowl. And Egypt's did, Egyptians did put a lot of weird things on their heads. They did. Like when they went to parties, they put ice cream on their head. Well, not ice cream, but um, frozen perfume stuff. They put a glob of it on their head. <laughs> and it would just kind of melt over them as the party went on. That's true. What are you doing? Egypt's a hot country. Try that in Akron. Let's do that in the next church social. Like, <laughs> a ball of frozen perfume on our head. And we'll just see how that works. Anyway, the coal thing... The scholars say, some scholars say, that this was a public penance thing. You like, put a towel on your head, put a bowl on it, put hot coals in there, and while your head is smoking, it's a public way of saying that you repent, and specifically they say it means that you've repented, or you've changed your mind, or you have a penitential attitude because somebody was kind to you, and your relationship, the nature of your relationship has changed. If that's true, that's probably what he's talking about. I'm not totally sure they ever did that. <laughs> But most scholars simply say that this is a reference to describing shame and embarrassment. In other words, you may, by your kindness, make your enemy ashamed and embarrassed that they were ever so unkind to you. That is a more reasonable and likely explanation, probably. Um, and it does happen. It actually does happen. So, not always, though. It's not a guarantee. It's just that it could happen that way. It might be a good fruit. Great example of that, David and Saul. Now, you remember Saul. King Saul. David killed Goliath and suddenly he was more popular than Saul and Saul was like a, well he was sort of a mental case uh, he, he was like kind of going off the deep end working towards that elevator only went up to the 10th floor you know that kind of thing he's having trouble and, and Saul would just get mad at David and just he'd be at banquets and David would be over there and the people had a song and the song was Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands now if you're, only, if you're on the thousands end of that you're not thinking about the thousands part which is really a compliment but the 10,000th part, which is he's being more complimented than I am. And Saul would just sit there and stew about that. Get angry about that. And David would be sitting over there across the room, and Saul would grab a spear off the wall and throw it at him. Now, that's not good behavior when you're the, when you're the host and you're a young man. And, and David was very loyal. So David eventually, after the two or three spears, you know, he, he, over time he learned that he probably should leave town. It was probably a good idea not to be at those banquets anymore. So he ran away into the woods. And Saul, Saul being just this mental case, king, is going, he wants my throne. He wants my throne. He's out there raising an army against me. So he got all his guys together and went chasing after David, just rampaging around the countryside trying to catch this young man. And a couple of times, um, David had an opportunity to kill Saul. 
In one particular instance, David is hiding in a cave. And it just so happens Saul and his men are passing by the cave. And Saul says, well, I need to um, use the facilities, so I'm going to go up to this cave, fellas. I'll see you in a few minutes. And Saul comes in and is taking care of business in this cave. And David's sitting right next to him practically in this dark cave while Saul's doing his thing. And David reaches over and snaps a piece off of this, cuts a piece off of his cloak. It's like his belt or his tassels or something. And, and holds it. And then Saul leaves with his men and then David comes out and goes, Saul! I just could have been you! I'm loyal! Get it? I could have killed you. I could have killed you. And I didn't do it. And Saul says, in response to that, this is in First Samuel 24, 17, Saul says to David, You are more righteous than I! Burning coals, burning coals, burning coals. For you have dealt well with me, for I have dealt wickedly with you. And you have declared today that you have done good to me. And the Lord delivered me into your hand, and you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? May the Lord therefore reward you with good in return for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. That, that was his response. He actually had a transformation. Now later on, he got into that mood again. And David did the same thing. He had a chance to kill him, saved his life, said, Woo-hoo! and the same thing happened again. And Saul said again, I was wrong, I repent, you're right, you're more righteous than I. I mean, it does have that effect sometimes on our enemies, sometimes in a more permanent way. So what's the point? David is a great example of what this, this principle here. A genuine enemy, and, and think about it. Sitting in that cave, mightn't you be tempted to think, God brought him into this cave just for me. <laughs> I've got my sword. I've got my men. He's sitting right there. He's busy. I can kill him. You know, and, and God, oh, I wouldn't have done it if God had not provided such a perfect opportunity to kill. You know, that's how people think. I would not have done this evil if God had not brought so-and-so and, you know, all that stuff, you know, that's the way people are. I wouldn't have went off of him if God hadn't brought him into my life. Those kind of things, you know. But, um, David does the right thing. And because he does the right thing, God blesses him. And he does. He burning coals on his enemy's head. Saul is ashamed, actually ashamed of what he'd done. And apologized. So he did kindness to an avowed enemy and one of a preve. Now that might not happen, but still it's what we're called to do, whether our enemies respond that way or not. Paul's final words in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil. We just sang that this morning, but overcome evil with good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To be overcome by evil is what? To resort to evil. To accomplish your purposes, right? Remember, it's always better to be wronged than to do wrong. Always. Well then, where's justice? Isn't there an open door for villains to just take over the world if we live like that? Should evildoers just be blessed and prayed for and not held to account? No. They should be blessed and prayed for by you. But God has provided another means to deal with evil that endangers society or other people. God invented this thing called government and gave it authority to act for justice. And that's the subject of chapter 13, which we'll look at in two weeks. But until then, love your enemies, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great truth of the scripture, your holy word, the power 
of Christ's example, even of King David's example, as a young man, Lord, doing the right thing, not touching even his enemy when you twice put his enemy into his hands. Lord, we thank you for that. We, we appreciate that because we know we can do it too if we have the right frame of mind, if we are transformed and renewed in our own thinking and our own feeling. Grant us the mercy and the grace to love like this, like Jesus did. And we know that if we do, we will be world-changing type individuals. We thank you for the privilege of even living that way in this dark world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.